So I know if you heard David say, uh, shorter text today than what's on the front of your bulletin. So only the second half of verse 4 through verse 11. I just realized this morning that it was going to be too much to go all the way through verse 15. So we're going to shorten it. If you're using one of the Bibles that you find under a seat in front of you, it's going to be on page 587. On page 587, you'll find John chapter 16. Please open your Bibles there. But before I preach this sermon, we should pray together. Our Father in heaven, thank you for the gift that it is to gather together as your people and worship you, to sing to you and to sing to one another, to read your word together, to say your word together, to pray to you, to take communion together, to listen now to the preaching of your word. And God, would you please help me as prepared as I am to still hear the preaching of your word also so that I could continue to benefit like I've benefited this week. Help me to speak well and clearly. We have all kinds of people here at all different ages from all kinds of backgrounds. And I don't want everything I say to go over everyone's heads. So, Lord, would you help me to speak well so that everyone would understand what they need to understand? And I know my part in that, God, but we need your spirit to come and to fill us now and to do a good work in each of us. So we pray that you would do this, expecting that you will. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Okay, John chapter 16, beginning in verse 4. Jesus says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. You're moping, Jesus is saying, I think, to his disciples here. You are moping. Sorrow has filled your heart, understandably, but you're fixated on yourselves right now. Now, on one hand, we have, you could look back, we have seen Jesus sympathize with this. I mean, who could blame them? I'd feel the same way. You'd feel the same way. They love Jesus. They need Jesus. He's going. They're confused. And so sorrow has filled their heart. That's understandable And on one hand, Jesus sympathized with that, right? And beginning at the end of chapter 13, he spent like a whole chapter comforting them. So on the one hand, he sympathizes with the sorrow. He sympathizes with the moping. But on the other hand, right here, he is challenging their sort of gloomy attitude. He's challenging them here. And he illustrates this by pointing out that none of them are even interested in where he is going. Verse 5, and none of you asks me, where are you going? So that's confrontational. Sorrow has filled your heart. Understand that. I've comforted you with that. But on the other hand, I want to challenge you. You're very fixated on yourself right now. None of you are even interested in where I'm going. But a couple of them were interested in where he was going, weren't they? So when I read that verse this week, I thought, wait, Jesus, you got that wrong. Because I'm pretty sure I remember uh, Peter and another guy asking you where you were going. So I looked back and look at Look at Peter in chapter 13, verse 36. He asks him, and look at Thomas. 
in chapter 14, verse 5, they're asking him, right, where are you going? But here Jesus says, you're not even asking me where you're going. So why is he giving them a hard time? Because it looks to me like they did ask him, where are you going? So this is the best that I could come up with. Remember, Jesus sees the heart. I don't think they really cared where he was going. And I think Jesus knows they don't really care where he's going. Their question was pretense. Their question was more of a protest. They're not really interested in where he's going. So let me illustrate that for you. And this is how I was able to accept that. Uh, there will be times in our home where I have to leave or go to a meeting and either my kids didn't know about it or I didn't know about it and it's a sort of uh, spur of the moment thing and maybe we were planning to do something or play catch or have a tea party and they're disappointed and they're upset that the dad has to go. I'm glad they're upset when I have to go, by the way. I'm really glad they're upset. So we have six kids, and this happens from time to time. Now, sometimes they'll ask me, where do you have to go? And the facial expression when they ask that and the tone when they ask that tells me that clearly they're not really wanting to sit down and talk about where I'm going. They're protesting. When they say, where do you have to go? Where are you going? What they're saying is, please don't go. So I think that's what's happening with Peter. I think that's what's happening with Thomas. God sees through it. Jesus sees through it to the heart. He says, you guys are fixated on yourselves right now. I know sorrow has filled your heart, but you're not even interested in why I am going where I am going, what this is for. I think that is the disciples here. So, Jesus in the next verse, in verse 7, he gives them information that is intended to help them. Basically, take heart, it's for your good that I go. So that's how he's going to encourage them. Stop moping. Take heart. It is for your good that I go. So do you hear that in verse 7? Let's read verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, and that's the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. Now think about what Jesus just said. Jesus just said that having the Holy Spirit is better than having Jesus. But just say it frankly and starkly like that. Jesus is saying that having the Holy Spirit is better than having Jesus. That's what he's telling them. I mean, is that what you hear? It's to your advantage that I go. You're not going to have me here with you. I've got to go. But it's for your good that I go. Why is it for your good that I go? Because when I go, you'll have the Holy Spirit. So I don't know how else to break that down than to, than to hear Jesus saying that having the Holy Spirit is better than having Jesus. It's like Jesus is saying, you think I'm helpful? Wait till you're filled with the Holy Spirit and you're going to know help. That sounds kind of, and that just sounds kind of weird to me at first. I don't expect Jesus to talk like that. There's nothing better than having Jesus. I don't think the disciples are buying that yet. 
There's no way they're believing that yet. Because you never believe that. When you have something good and someone tells you about something that you've never experienced and they tell you that it's better, you never believe that. Right? You never believe that. You experience that with your kids. Maybe you're taking them somewhere. Maybe you're taking them on a vacation. Maybe you're taking them to a specific campground. And you know it's the greatest campground that they'll ever go to. But they've never been to that campground. And they've been to some great campgrounds. So in their mind, there's no way it's better. They're not taking your word for it. Maybe they get there and then they agree with you. Well, right now the disciples have Jesus. There's nothing better than Jesus. So how could this possibly be to our advantage that when you go, we get the Holy Spirit, and that is even better? So to have the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, is better than having me. You think I'm helpful Wait until you are filled with the Holy Spirit. Prepare to be helped like you've never been helped before. Here's one great advantage. Probably the most significant. Jesus is a man. I understand, you understand or maybe you're hearing now, he is also God. Fully God, fully man. But Jesus is a man. He's a man right now. The Holy Spirit is a spirit. Well, one of the limitations, you men and women, you know this, you can only be in one place at one time. You wish that was different. And you wish you could be in many places at one time, and you try to do it through social media, but you can't. You're only in one place at one time, wherever you are, be there, that's good advice. But a spirit, the Holy Spirit, can be, think about it, in a million different places at the same time. And He is indwelling every believer. So that's an advantage. That's big time. He could, Jesus could be with those 11 disciples, and when he went here, maybe he was only with three of them. When he went here, maybe he was only with five of them. But when the Holy Spirit comes, the Holy Spirit, who is also God, is with millions at the same time, indwelling every single believer. That's over the top. So this might put into perspective comments like, I wish I could have walked with Jesus. If only I was alive when Jesus was living on this earth. It would have been so great. It would have been so much, and you don't want to say this anymore, better. Now, it wouldn't be better, not according to John chapter 16, verse 7. So that's not so much an overrating of walking with Jesus, because you can't do that. But it is an underrating of walking with the Holy Spirit. That's, that's the problem with that. You can't overrate walking with Jesus. That's ama- you're going to do it one day. It's amazing. We'd all want that. But we can't underrate walking with the Holy Spirit as if that is junior varsity. It's not. And Jesus says, it is to your advantage. There are, and doesn't the Bible say this, there are more advantages to being a Christian than there was to being, say, John the Baptist. Okay. So it's for their good that Jesus is leaving. That's what he said. Because he will then send the helper. And when the helper comes, what is he going to do? And that's the subject of our next verses. So there's two more sections, and we're only going to get to one today, 8 through 11. Next week, Lord willing, 12 through 15. But let's look at verses 8 through 11. 
There is so much here. And I think we'll just get the tip of the iceberg. And you can, and I would encourage you to think about it all week. Think about it all week. Let me pause and just say this. I don't know how much information you have coming in in a given week, but I have so much information coming in in a given week. And many of you have so much theological information coming in on a given week. You listen, you read this blog, and that blog, and this blog, and that blog, and you subscribe to this podcast, and that podcast, and you read that, and this, and this tweeter, and <laughs> that tweeter. I don't know, is that the word? I don't want to be a tweeter. And my, my question has always been, how do you possibly take that all in? And I've challenged some of you. How do you possibly take that all in? How do you meditate on that? How do you digest any of that? And so many of us are just, I think, like these spiritually obese Christians. Like you're taking in way more than your spirit can even use, and you're just sort of storing it up, and it's just hanging on you. I mean, how, <laughs> it's getting weird now, but I mean, how much of that can you actually take in? So you've heard me advocate before. I know for me, and I think for many of you, hey, just take a sermon, not because my sermons are so great, but because the text is so great, but just chew on this all week. What would happen if we took in a little less of so much else and together just really meditated on a text together in a given week? Now, some of you have way more capacity than I do. I know that. I can only take in so much before things start falling out the back door. And it's not much. It's not much. So we've got verses 8 through 11. There's so much here. You could think about this all week. Okay, three comments before we look at the ministry of the Holy Spirit more clearly in verses 8 through 11. Three comments, and then we'll look at these three things the Holy Spirit does. Number one, just, just a comment. We have all kinds of passages in the Bible about the Holy Spirit's work in the church and in Christians. This is the only passage, I think. It's at least one of the only passages. This is the only passage, to my knowledge, that is about the Holy Spirit's work in the world. That's cool. It's interesting. It's curious. The only one here, this is about the Holy Spirit's work, we're being told here, in the world. He is doing work in the world, next week more about how he does it, but he is doing work in the world, namely, what does verse 8 say? Convicting. That is work that the Holy Spirit today is doing in the world, convicting. Read verse 8 with me. When he comes, the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Second comment. This word convict shows up 17 times in the New Testament. And every time this word convict, it's used in different ways like rebuke and reprove and expose. So it's translated into different English words. But this word in the Greek shows up 17 times in the New Testament. And every single time it shows up, it has to do with showing someone their guilt. So it's going to be helpful as we read through this. So the Holy Spirit will come. And what kind of work is he going to do in the world? He's going to convict. So what does that mean? But well, we know because of what that word means that it is going to involve showing someone their guilt. So you've got a courtroom scene here. Are you feeling that as we read through these verses in previous weeks and today? You have a courtroom type scene and setting. So you have words and phrases like bear witness and convict and judgment and we're told here that the Holy Spirit will convict the world of guilt. 
was like a courtroom. So the Holy Spirit, to use another word, he's prosecuting. The Holy Spirit is prosecuting. So if you're a Christian here today, the Holy Spirit, we know from another word that was just used, he is your helper. So let's stick with the scene. He's your defense attorney. Okay, the Holy Spirit is your helper. He's your advocate. He is your defense attorney. I will send him to be a helper to you, Christians, not a helper to the world, a helper to you, Christian. What is he doing in the world? He's a prosecutor. So the Holy Spirit is our defense attorney and the world's prosecutor and Christian. He was your prosecutor before he was your defense attorney. And he's still prosecuting. We'll get to that. But he was your, he's your defense attorney now. But do you remember? He was your prosecutor before he was your defense attorney because you used to be of the world. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Now you're in the world, you're not of the world, but before that you were of the world. And so the Holy Spirit, this ministry that he does for the world, he did that for you. He prosecuted. Third comment, last comment, but then we'll look more closely. This prosecuting work of the Holy Spirit, or literally, this convicting the world of guilt, that explains, if you're a Christian, why you're here today. You are here today, partly, and you are here today, necessarily, because at one point, the Holy Spirit was your prosecutor. You were convicted of guilt by the Holy Spirit. You were prosecuted by the Holy Spirit. You were made to sweat on the stand. Now, some of you can remember it. I've been a witness in a courtroom before. I felt like I was able to, I'm thankful for that now, I was able to connect with this in a way that maybe I wouldn't have been able to connect with it. But I've been a witness in a courtroom before. It was very uncomfortable. It was very uncomfortable. It wasn't so much uncomfortable when I was being questioned by our attorney. I mean, that was uncomfortable, but I wasn't really sweating yet. It became really uncomfortable when I was being prosecuted, when I was being asked questions by the opposing attorney, when I was being bombarded with questions. But then my heart started to race. I can still remember it. My heart started to race. I remember thinking, I'm sweating. Not a normal amount. I'm not running, but I was sweating. Start second-guessing, start thinking and, and, and worrying about, am I getting trapped here? Am I, am I saying something that I'm not supposed to say? And on and on and on. And that, just that uncomfortableness that I felt was in a context where I had absolutely nothing to hide. Imagine if I had something to hide. We'll get to that. But imagine if I had something to hide. Now, this prosecuting work of the Holy Spirit also explains how these 11 insignificant men from a tiny, insignificant place with a seemingly insignificant message turned the world completely upside down. That is ridiculous. These were insignificant men. There were only 11 of them. And they were in a very insignificant place in terms of political power. 
They were an oppressed people. They had zero political clout. And their message, I mean, if you're a Christian, you know it was significant, but it was seemingly insignificant. Think about what their message was. God, uncreated creator, king of the universe, was Jesus, recently deceased. And you must place your faith and trust in him. That's a laughing stock. That is laughable. And yet these insignificant men in this insignificant place with a seemingly insignificant message turned the world completely upside down. Many of you are here in part today because of what happened through those men. So my question is, how do you account for that? How can you possibly account for that? Why did anybody listen to that? So you have an answer right here in the text. Because when Jesus sent out those 11 disciples, he also sent out his Holy Spirit. So whatever he wanted to get done, got done. Otherwise, the world is not changed. The world is not turned upside down. Okay, so those were just some comments. Let's look at his actual prosecution here. And I think we'll take about the same amount of time to do this as we did with those comments in case some of you are panicking. Okay, here's his prosecution. I love it. It's a nice little three-point sermon, isn't it? Nice little, neat little three-point sermon about sin, righteousness, and judgment. Verse 8, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, and then he gives one sentence and a reason for each one. It's very nice, very neat. The world does not understand sin or righteousness or judgment. If you understand them now, you didn't understand them at one point. The world does not understand sin or righteousness or judgment. We think we're off the hook with each. I thought I was off the hook with each. And the Holy Spirit comes and convicts and prosecutes and says, you got it wrong about sin. You got it wrong about righteousness. You got it wrong about judgment. So that's what he's doing here. Let's take them one at a time, just like Jesus does. Number one, sin. Verse 9. He will convict the world of sin because they do not believe in me. What is he saying? Everybody, Christian or not, feels guilty for their sins. I I don't think it's true when when Christians say that if you're not a Christian, it's impossible to be moral or it's impossible to know the difference between right and wrong. That's not true. That's not true. Everybody, Christian or not, feels guilty for their sins. They may not call them sins. They may not call them sins, but they have things that they do that they are wrong and they feel bad for them. Everybody. That's because one reason, they have a conscience. They have a conscience. They have an internal moral rudder. They have uh, God's law, God's truth written on their hearts. Now, you're all born with that. It's common grace of God. Now, you can ignore it, and you can dismiss it, and you can bury it, and you can, you can do that. So much that it's not sharp anymore, or it's dead, and you don't know right from wrong any more than you know up from down, but, but you've got that conscience. You're, you're born with it. 
And most people, I know a lot of good people in that sense, whether or not they're Christians. And they do good things, and they know what good things are, and they don't do bad things, and they know what bad things are. So there's, there's more to it here than this. The Holy Spirit is not, I think one way we could say it, is not convicting the world of sins, but of sin. And that is literally what we're told here. It doesn't say he will convict the world of sins. He will convict the world of sin. What sin? What's the next thing he says? Because they do not believe in me, the sin of unbelief. So this prosecuting work of the Holy Spirit, one thing that he's doing is prosecuting for sin, unbelief. It's, it's, it's worse than just the bad things that you do. It's not just the bad things that you do. You, you do not believe. You have rejected God. You've rejected God. You are in rebellion against God. He tells you the way to go, and you go the other way. He tells you what he wants you to do, and you don't want to do it, so you don't do it. How much are you supposed to love him? You're supposed to love him. What's the standard? With all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. And anything, anything short of that is, is not appropriate. Anything short of that is not giving God what he's due. And we're all, to varying degrees, we are guilty of rebelling against God and rejecting him. And the Holy Spirit will come, and one of the works that he will do in the world is he will prosecute the world. And he will impress upon the world, just like he did for you. He will impress on them that it's, it's worse than you thought. It's worse than you thought. You've actually committed treason against God. And we want to say God has committed treason against us. No, you're not going my way, God. I say, that's not how this... You can't do that. He's ruler. He's king. I'm under him. This is gracious work of the Holy Spirit, right? It's gracious work of the Holy Spirit because it brings men and women in the world to recognize their need. It makes them desperate. It makes us desperate. If you're a Christian today, you're being saved. It started with I'm a sinner. It had to start there. It started with this conviction that wasn't there before. The Bible knowledge commentary said this, most people do not readily admit to being guilty of sin. In other words, against God. They will admit to failures or vices or even crimes. However, Sin is against God, and people have suppressed the truth of God. Well, one way to think about it is that before you understand the good news, you'd need to understand the bad news. Well, this prosecuting work of the Holy Spirit is what is impressing upon you the bad news. This is why the good news makes sense. When you're the good news of salvation in Jesus, there was a time where you heard that and you, you said, I... <laughs> I'm fine, thank you. I don't need, saved from what? That's ridiculous. I don't need that. You had to be convinced that you were guilty of something and going to be judged for something and were destined for something and it was inescapable and you needed to be saved. Then you were primed. And when you heard the good news, Christians, you believed it and you embraced it and said, this is not just the good news, it is the best thing I have ever heard because you were first prosecuted. You were put on the stand and you came to realize, it's a lot worse than I thought. I don't just do bad things, I'm just bad. It's deeper than that. Sin is not just something that's on me that you can wipe off or cover, it's in me. 
It's it, and I can't get in me. What am I going to do about this? So that's where, what happens? You start doing this. You start beating your chest on your knees saying, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's what kicked it off. You were being prosecuted, right? You're sweating on the stand. Oh, shoot. That's true. That's true. I'm stuck. I'm caught. And you felt that. You were burdened by it. And then you heard the good news. But you knew first that you needed help. I mean, think about this in your life. If someone comes to you and offers help, if you don't think you need it, you don't want it. In fact, sometimes you might even be offended by it. I get offended every time at the grocery store when a 17-year-old kid says, do you need help out to your car with your groceries? I'm like, do I look like I need help, son? Come on, son. <laughs> Have you not seen these right here? Not even allowed to wear long sleeve shirts without a permit to carry concealed weapons. I'll help you with your groceries. I'm exaggerating. No, I'm not. If someone comes up to you, right, when you're older and frail and they ask you for help getting into your car, you want their help. For some of you, if someone comes up to you right now, you're getting in your car and they say, do you need some help getting into your car? You say, what, what? Why are you asking me that? Do I look like I need help getting into my car? You might laugh at them. Okay, it's the same thing. It's what the prosecuting work of the Holy Spirit is doing. You need help. You need help. You've got to do something, and you can't do it. It's impossible. And this is great. Tim Keller said, you, I was so blessed by this. You will respond in love to the degree you feel you need that help. If somebody offers you help and you don't feel you need it, it is an insult. If somebody offers you help and you think you need it a little bit, that's nice. And if somebody offers you help and you are desperate for it, that person becomes your savior. So the Holy Spirit comes and convicts the world of guilt concerning sin. Number two, righteousness. Look at verse 10. He will convict the world of righteousness. Because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Convict of righteousness. Is that a misprint? Is that a misprint? Convict of sin. I get that. What do you mean convict of righteousness? That's the good thing. Sin's the bad thing. That's the good thing. You don't need to be convicted of the good thing, do you? I just quoted him, and I am so thankful to Timothy Keller. He is pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. And one of the reasons I'm so thankful to him is for helping me to see years ago what comes out in my preaching to this day and it's this right here that we're reading. It's this right here. What do we say? Everyone repents from unrighteousness. Christians repent from righteousness. That's probably still sounding weird to some of you. But that's a difference. Everyone feels bad for bad things they do and wants to stop it. That's what we mean by repent from unrighteousness, but Christians repent from righteousness because the Holy Spirit comes and, that would make sense, wouldn't it? That's why the Holy Spirit comes and convicts concerning righteousness. So let's work that out. It is realizing by the help of the Holy Spirit this, that that I do this, you do this, I use my righteousness either to 
earn God's favor or pay for my sins. And everybody does this to varying degrees. I, I use my righteousness either to earn God's favor or pay for my sins. And it works out like this. Here's how that looks. I'm a good person. Now that is a, a way of saying, to use a biblical term, I am righteous. I'm a good person. Therefore, I'm good with God. I'm favored by God. I'm acceptable to God. And so I'm a good person, or I'm, I'm better than others, because that's how we determine it. I'm better than others, or I'm better than most, because you can always find someone worse than you. You can always find someone worse than you. So comparatively, I'm a good person, and that is what makes me valuable and acceptable and wanted, and that is why I don't need to feel ashamed because I am a good person. Now that is a superiority complex. And friends, it is wrong. And this is why it's wrong. It's wrong because it is looking at the cross of Christ and literally saying, I'm good. I'm good. Or no thank you. I'm a good person. I'm righteous. That is why I am acceptable to God. That's why we're good. That's why I'm going to heaven. Which means... I don't need Jesus to die for me. I'm not saved because he's good. I'm saved because I'm good. And we do this in all sorts of ways. In all sorts of ways, we get ourselves to a place where we can look ourselves in the mirror and say, I'm good, I'm acceptable. I'm presentable. I'm valuable. And maybe I do it through my kids. Maybe I do it through my spouse. Maybe I do it through the church I go to. Maybe it's through my home. Maybe it's through my money. Maybe it's through my career. Maybe it's through my church ministry. Maybe it's through my accomplishments. But it's whatever this stuff is, that that's what helps me look in the mirror and say, I'm good. I'm acceptable. I'm presentable. I'm favored by God. So in that case, you, friend, you need to be convicted not only of sin, but of that righteousness. And not everyone struggles with it that way. Not everyone has a superiority complex. Others have an inferiority complex. And most of you are going to find yourself falling into temptation in one of those two categories. You are, maybe you know this individual, maybe your heart breaks for this individual that over and over again find themselves in destructive situations, in destructive decisions, in destructive relationships. It's so sad. And it repeats itself over and over and over. Why? Here's one reason. You don't think, it's the opposite problem, you don't think you're righteous. You don't think you're good. And you feel guilty and ashamed all the time. And you find yourself in these destructive patterns as a way, some of you, for trying to atone for your sin and who you are. And you think, this is what I deserve. 
and I don't deserve anything better than this. Friends, do you see how in both cases you are your own savior? Either you are doing these good things and earning favor with God or you're doing these good things as a sort of penance. You're doing these good things to sort of pay for who you think you are, to pay for your sins, to atone for your sins. In both cases, what is the problem? It is a misunderstanding, isn't it? What you do will never get you to Jesus. It is what Christ does. It is what Christ has done. All of this self-righteousness is saying, okay, I'm a sinner, number one, I can accept that, but, but look at all the good things I do. And that doesn't hold water. That doesn't work. You can't do that. It doesn't cover it. It doesn't make it disappear. It is empty righteousness. It is hollow righteousness. And so the Bible says things like this about that righteousness. Isaiah 64, 6. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Or Romans 10.3, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. And finally, Titus 3.5, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. So what do you hear in all those verses? This righteousness, this kind of righteousness, it is not good. If you're, doing, if you're being righteous, if you're being a good person out of gratitude for what God has done, amen. That is good. Live your life out of that gratitude. But if you are doing those good things to earn favor from God, stop. Stop. The message of the gospel is not, if you can be good enough and if you can obey enough, God will accept you. The message of the gospel following the prosecuting work of the Holy Spirit is you can't obey enough. You can't be good enough. I know that. I'm merciful. And so I'll send my son to die in your place. So you're loved. You're accepted. Now, go obey. totally different. So the Holy Spirit, out of grace, prosecutes the world in regard to sin, prosecutes the world in regard to righteousness, and finally, he prosecutes in regards to judgment. Verse 11. He will convict the world of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. You see the Holy Spirit doing this work. For those of you who are Christians, you remember the Holy Spirit doing this work. You're convicted of sin. You're convicted of your righteousness. You're convicted of judgment. In other words, what's the verdict? What is the judgment what is the verdict? Look at the context. You will be judged. You will be judged like the ruler of this world has been judged. You are guilty. This is the prosecuting work of the Holy Spirit. You are guilty and there is no escaping it. Or is there? Or is there? Is there a way of escaping this? What has the Holy Spirit done for you, friend? The Holy Spirit has, through this prosecuting work, He has softened 
your heart and made you ready to receive the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if he doesn't do that, you don't receive it. And when he wasn't doing that, you weren't receiving it. And some of you who became Christians maybe later in life, you can remember a lot of life where you weren't receiving it. And then you can remember the Holy Spirit putting you on the stand. And you can remember the effect that it had on you. I read this week to illustrate this, uh, some excerpts from the biography of C. Everett Koop, who was a famous pediatric surgeon and was a surgeon general of this country under Ronald Reagan, and he was a believer. And he became a Christian at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, uh, while there was a pastor there named Donald Gray Barnhouse, who's a famous pastor, uh, a good pastor, who preached the gospel. And he was saved under his ministry. But when he recounts his testimony, he talks about how when he first started attending this church and listening to this pastor, how irritated he was by the pastor. Week in and week out. Just irritated by him. Who does this pastor think he is? Who does he think he is? And he fought and he wrestled. And he didn't like the things that he was hearing. And he looks back and sees that as this prosecuting work of the Holy Spirit. And when you're being bombarded by these questions, well, what about this and what about that? And what about this and what about that? And where were you then and where were you now? And on and on and on. And you start getting really uncomfortable. And finally, he came to this realization. He said, I began to realize I was only a nominal Christian trying my best to be decent, but my efforts to reform myself were of no avail. What was happening? The Holy Spirit was prosecuting. The Holy Spirit was convicting him not only of his sin, but of his righteousness and of judgment. And he received the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let me wrap this up. In conclusion, just two thoughts. Number one, I would encourage you to ask yourself, has the Holy Spirit convicted you in these three ways? Has the Holy Spirit convicted you concerning sin? Has the Holy Spirit convicted you concerning righteousness? Has the Holy Spirit convicted you concerning judgment? If the Holy Spirit has not convicted you in these three ways, you have not come to Christ. So I say that out of care for you. Because it's so easy. It's so easy. Maybe easier than ever. I don't know about that. But it's just so easy today. In this country specifically, to think you're a Christian and not be a Christian. It's just you've got to know that. So we're always sort of, if you've been here for a while, you know, we're just, we're, every now and then, we're just feeling real uncomfortable. And we're just asking ourselves really difficult questions and saying, hey, don't make assumptions and examine yourself to see whether or not you're in the faith. Make your calling and election sure. And hey, don't, don't take these things for granted and don't... You know, please don't tell me you're a Christian because you've got a certificate or because you remember the day that you were baptized and it was really a big deal or, or you said these words or you said a prayer. We're always challenging each other, aren't we, and saying, hey, don't, please don't hang it on that. Make, make sure. 
Because in the first century, there weren't a lot of reasons to become a Christian. That's why they baptized them right away, by the way. I mean, if you said you were a Christian, you're a Christian because you're probably going to get killed. And there's all kinds of incentives today for saying that you're a Christian. So we just need to be careful with this. And we need to challenge one another and say, have you really come to Christ? So we bump up against it in a text like this, and we can ask ourselves, it's another test, has the Holy Spirit prosecuted me like this? Have I been convicted in regards to my sin? Have I been convicted in regards to my righteousness and judgment? Have I sweat on the stand? Has the the Holy Spirit cross-examined you relentlessly? Before God. If he hasn't done that, you may not have received the gospel. So it's worth thinking through again. And then, secondly, what about people? I think there's a great application. What about people you know who don't know Jesus? How do we how do I turn this and apply it? Okay, first to me, but now. To other people, specifically people that I know, um, even more specifically people that I love, people that you're burdened with, and you know who they are. And some of you are burdened for them like no one else is burdened for them, and that's for a reason, and you should be praying a lot. So what about people you know who don't know Jesus? Well, in light of this text, isn't this a great way to pray for them? Isn't this a great way to pray for them? Don't you want to pray this, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, would you come and convict them of sin? Would you come and convict them of righteousness? Would you come and convict them of judgment? You pray that way for people you love. You pray that way for your friends. You pray that way for your parents who don't know Jesus? Do you pray that way for your brothers and sisters, your neighbors? Do you pray for your kids that way? Do you pray that the Holy Spirit would put them on the hot seat? Do you pray that they would know that uncomfortable prosecution of the Holy Spirit? It's so uncomfortable, isn't it? Some of you can remember, it's just like you, you almost died. You almost, it was almost, it was, it was right to the edge, isn't it? It was almost more than you can bear. Sometimes it's more than you can bear. Christian, don't you experience that? You still get prosecuted by the Holy Spirit? You're reading your Bible and you just, oh, I don't like where this is going. So what do you do? What are you tempted to do? Just close it. That's good for today. Next week, we'll go to Proverbs, (laughs) or Song of Solomon, that's a good one, or Ecclesiastes, I'm going to go somewhere else, but I'm not, I'm not going there again, because it just feels, you ever have that, and you're reading, and you're like, I think that, that could be, that could be, no, that's not me, that's not me, I used to struggle, I don't struggle with that anymore, and you keep reading, and what's happening, you feel that weight, What's happening? This is be thankful for that. It's not just coming from nowhere. The Holy Spirit is prosecuting you. Hey, you need to think about this. You need to see this. You see dimly. And he awakens you to, so that you can, you can do something about it. Okay, and all we're saying is the biggest way he ever did that was when you became a Christian. That's when the curtain got pulled back. Don't you want that to happen for those you love? So pray, Holy Spirit, will you convict them of sin? Will you convict them of righteousness? Will you convict them of judgment so they have nothing left, so their heart is softened, so that they will willingly, with great joy, receive the gospel of Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this good news Thank you for uh, giving us, I, I hope, more understanding of the work that you have done in our hearts. God, thank you for this convicting work that the Holy Spirit did in us when we were of the world. And we pray now that 
the Holy Spirit, we have specific people in mind, each of us. And so we're just thinking of them right now, God. And as we think of them, as we name them in our mind, God, we pray that you convict them concerning sin. God, I pray that they would, they would actually now feel guilty for not believing in Jesus. God, we pray that you would send your spirit and convict them concerning righteousness. That anything good in them that they're holding on to would this morning feel hollow and feel empty and make them desperate. And that, God, you would convict them concerning judgment and the verdict here. And that it is not and will not go well for the one they are devoted to. And that, God, in that, then you would put your gospel before them. In their friends, in us, in their family, that you would put the good news in our mouth, that we would speak the good news to them, and, and unbeknownst to us, the Holy Spirit had them on the stand, prosecuting them, so that our words had more of an effect than we ever thought possible. God, will you do this work? And thank you for doing that work in us. Thank you for making us squirm. And thank you for getting us to the place where we had nowhere to go but you. We give you all glory and praise and honor. And thank you in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.